This week, we'll continue in our uh, study um, highlighting, accenting, um, profiling uh, saints, holy ones in Jesus uh, during this All Saints season. Last week, uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove was here, and he talked uh, about Ann Atwater, one of Durham's saints. And Jonathan was able to talk about Grandma Anne, as he called her, in a really personal way, because he, he knew her. He, he sat on her porch. He, 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 as he said, became her son. Um, it's a challenge, though, when you never met someone. You never knew them personally, especially when it's a holy one in Christ. It's here we often fall prey to like hagiography, like we talk about people only in really positive terms because we don't know better. We only know what people have talked about with them, what their legend is, um, what maybe even their own well-edited words say, but we haven't gotten to see them in real life. We're liable to make them into who we want them to be or who we've heard that they are from others, and some of that's helpful. But it can also be kind of a subtle form of idolatry, like capital I, or I mean a lowercase I idolatry, right? Like, um, and I think that's related to capital I idolatry because when we make some normal person who God's grace has impacted their life and they've grown into Christ-likeness in their context and in their time and place, when we make them into someone that is special or unattainable, we we put more and more distance between ourselves and God's work and action in our own life. We, we look at them as someone who we could never be or someone who um, had something um, that, that we want and, and can't get rather than someone who we see God's love refracted in a special way through, um, that, that we see what Christ looks like in a very particular way and, and are inspired by the same spirit to be also like Christ in our own way. So this is the case with today's saint, St. Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Good. These are people who have listened to my sermons probably, right? Um, if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, that's okay too. He was born at the beginning of the 20th century in Europe uh, to an aristocratic family. Um, many of us know Bonhoeffer. Um, some of us have even read Bonhoeffer through uh, his more like devotional uh, writings, things like Life Together, which the um, family home group, uh, Mustard Seed group is reading right now, or The Cost of Discipleship, or also probably a better translation is just Discipleship. Um, or at least you've heard preachers like me quoting Diedrich Bonhoeffer, right? Diedrich was something of a wunderkind. Uh, I'm going to use as many German words as I can to talk about this German saint. Um, he was like a genius kid, is what I think what wonder kid, wonderkind means. He's the sort of kid people expect great things out of, um, who kind of have the future on rails for. Um, things sort of came easy for him, so his path to success, especially in the academy in Germany, was kind of visible for, from a young age. Uh, our friend Joe Longarino who's living in Heidelberg, Germany right now, was describing to me how the German education system works, um, even now, and it's something um, like a, an aptitude is, 
is identified in a kid and they're put kind of on a track towards that thing and you can't just choose a major or change your major sort of thing like you are set towards this goal and because of that they have um, a, a lot more control over uh, over uh, what people do and also a lot more success in achieving those goals right um, and that was very much Dietrich Bonhoeffer's childhood his legacy though after Bonhoeffer is really contested, really sometimes even misunderstood, even as he left us with so many of his own words. It's maybe a little like Jesus, right? <laughs> in a recent, there's a recent book called The Battle for Bonhoeffer, like in the last year. The author is a professor named Stephen Haynes, and he said, people want to use him in a liberal way or a conservative way. They want to use him in a way that speaks not only for what they believe, but also against what they're against. Again, sounds a little like Jesus. If this tug of war happened in Bonhoeffer's death, I think this tension in this tug of war also happened in his life. And this might be something some of us identify with. These places of tension, or uh, Charles Taylor would call them cross pressures, right? He lived and worked and learned and ministered in a really fragmented time. This is World War II or right on the eve of World War II, Europe and his homeland. His privileged church that he grew up in, the Lutheran church, was becoming more and more bewitched by this national socialist zeitgeist. There's another German word for you, right? Uh, they, they were throwing in their hat with this Nazi... Hitler vision of a white ethno-nationalist state that needed to be cleansed of anything or anyone else. And they usually did this with Christian language. That's the spooky thing about it. With, with Lutheran language. Even some of the hymns and some of his mentors and some of his fellow clergy and academics were, were in on this growing plot. No doubt he also felt pulled by his professors and his colleagues as he studied in the heart of Protestant liberalism um, under a guy named Adolf, also another Adolf, Adolf Van Harnack is like the father of Protestant liberalism. And this um, strand of theology is really important because it deeply influences, it's kind of in the water, whether y'all know it or not, probably, probably of a kind of Christianity that you've consumed, either conservative or progressive. This strain of theology um, relies on reason and modern assumptions of what's possible to determine and how we can know and what we can know about God. The fruit of this seed is, is either, it can play out in a couple different ways, either a really strong confidence in the Bible that reads like a textbook, like a science book, um, or like a systematic theology that creates categories and sometimes says more about God than God reveals about God's self. Or otherwise it like can demythologize, can shake out all of the supernatural things that we don't think we can reproduce with like a scientific method. Uh, it can strip away um, the miraculous. It can take away mystery and intrigue into like the cold hard facts in a closed universe that God doesn't really act like God used to, right? Bonhoeffer learned quite a bit from Harnack, but imagine having such a fundamental disagreement with the person in charge of grading your papers, right? Like, that's something, 
you know, we, we've all felt that pressure in school of wanting to please our teacher, right? I think Bonhoeffer probably also felt really pulled by his family. These were aristocratic folk. They had expectations about their brilliant son and how he would rapidly ascend. Bonhoeffer had two doctoral degrees in his early 20s, right? So they had a lot of expectation, but they didn't have a whole lot of understanding about the discipline that he pursued, this whole theology thing, and kind of theology with a mix of sociology. This is, there's probably a few people in here who have decided to pursue like uh, liberal arts studies, and their parents are like, that's not, that's not business, right? And then, uh, finally, uh, another, another pressure for Bonhoeffer was uh, when he was eventually imprisoned and, and, and martyred. He, he, he wrote about this pressure that he was experiencing, this, this kind of turmoil and dissonance inside of him. And he wrote from prison, um, and there's a great legacy of Christian writers from prison, people like the Apostle Paul, for instance, or MLK or Nelson Mandela all wrote while imprisoned. And we have this collection of Bonhoeffer's uh, writings called Letters and Papers from Prison. And it's really beautiful because it's not as it, th this dense theology. It's often personal letters to his friends and, and family, right? And he writes in his Letters and Papers from Prison about the struggle for his identity. He wrote a poem, actually. And this poem is called, Who Am I? Maybe you've asked this question about yourself from time to time or season to season. He says, who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, and firmly like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak of my ward to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. This is a Bonhoeffer who's used to being in charge, right? He says, who am I? They also tell me. I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. This is tough Bonhoeffer. And then, and then he says, am I then really that which other men tell me of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. This is a little different. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible woebegone weakling? Or is something within me like a still beaten army fleeing in disaster and disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. And then he stops and he says, Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. What a statement about identity. From someone 
whose identity could have been pretty fixed by any of these currents around him. Either the familial expectations put on him or the cultural, political climate or the religious world that was in which he was a fast riser or even by the prison walls that were closing in around him. But instead of any of these sources of identity and perhaps even without really knowing what his source of identity was or what it should look like, he submitted all of these things to God. I am thine. I think something similar is happening in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Church of Galatia that we sang earlier. As we've mentioned, so often Paul talks to ordinary ones in Christ in places as saints, holy ones in Ephesus, holy ones in Philippi, holy ones in Durham. He doesn't really do that. For Galatia. <laughs> Paul peels the paint off the walls of Galatia. His tone is really harsh. He brings the heat in rhetoric that could make like Martin Luther or David Bentley Hart blush, right? He says they are deserting the one who called them, that they are forfeiting grace, that they are seeking another gospel. Later on, he calls them irrational fools and asks, who bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? Mostly because their lives, because their identities made too much sense apart from the grace of God. They knew who they were. They weren't asking, who am I? And they were... They were trying to make who they were a stipulation for receiving and experiencing God's grace. Theirs was a religion which would form their identities built upon their best ideas about who God was, what God requires, and how to best form a community. At the heart of this argument, Paul unleashes this gauntlet statement, and it's a beautiful encapsulation of the good news of, and it's in Galatians 2.20. He says, not me. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith, indeed by the, the very fidelity, the faithfulness of God's Son who loved me and gave himself for me. So for Paul, as for Bonhoeffer, he would learn and then teach this through his life and words and work. This entry into this Christ way of life is actually death. This entry into eternal life has to be death. It has to be death to our ideas, death to ourself, death to this world. As Pastor Dietrich so famously wrote in Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, also a woman, he calls him to come and to die. That's the calling of Jesus, come and die. But this isn't some morbid suffering alone. This is suffering, this is dying in and with the Jesus who has already suffered and died for us and with us and instead of us. The life we find, the life we take up once we've lost 
the best idea of what living is or what the good life could be is actually Jesus' life. It's a life with and for and instead of us. We die in Christ, and then Christ lives in us. This is the calculus of baptism, too, that some folks have seen us do baptisms here, where you get dunked under and brought back to, you are buried, um, and you die with Christ, and you're raised to newness of life in Christ. The thing about baptism is you're not getting cleaned off and brought up. You are getting drowned and resurrected, right? Like, it is a life that follows a, a real death of sorts, and we enact that. We do that to our kids, right? Much is made of, of Jesus taking our place, You've heard that, that on the cross Jesus took our place. Uh, in some way Jesus deflected or absorbed the sin that we deserved. And so that God um, took our place in Christ on the cross. Unfortunately, too little is made of Jesus also taking our place in life. That Jesus lives a life we couldn't live and still does. And that any life that we live, any, any goodness that we have is lived inside of this strong and durable life, this eternal life that it has already begun in Christ. This is what it means to live. This is what it means to walk by faith. Not by our own ideas, but to be in the faith, in the fidelity, in the like strung together little acts of faithfulness of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. This is what makes a saint, to be in Christ. Nothing special. That's just what a saint is, one, a holy one in Christ, one set apart by being in Christ, because Christ is set apart. That's actually what the name Christ means, set apart one, anointed one, hail to the Lord's anointed. So this is who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. This is who I am. This is who you are. And I think we can say hallelujah to that, right? Yeah, right? Oh, that's so weak, right? <laughs> there are a few other ways that I think this works out in the life uh, and work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I just want to, like, touch on a few of them. Um, we'll, we'll put, like, an annotated bibliography on this so that you can do some of this yourself. Right? But a few things I've noticed and a few things that have been important to me in ways that I've learned Christ and known Christ better through the life and work of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, are, first, that Christ is present in community. And, and if you want to know more about this, you can read Life Together. That's what our Family Mustard Seed group is reading. And, and the first chapter talks about this um, presence of Jesus in community, in the necessity of community in order to experience Jesus. That we, for Bonhoeffer, there's no imagination that, that we would ever just stumble upon Jesus or experience Jesus uh, uh, alone on some desert island um, by ourselves. We need each other to know Jesus. It's, it's, it's part and parcel of what we are. He says Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. This is a quote. <laughs> it's also what we need. It's not just what we are, but it's what we need. He said the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him or her. That we need them again and again. 
It says the Christ in our own heart is weaker than the Christ in our sister or brother. This is why we need community. We need each other to be showing each other Christ and, and speaking God's word to each other. Uh, our lives are, again, hidden in Christ. And that means each of our lives are hidden in Christ. And this is another really strange calculus, but it makes sense uh, when you start to imagine it. That means that I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, and that is the basis for our community. It has nothing to do with my bloodline. It has nothing to do with my, my socioeconomic status or race or bank account or education or anything about me. It's we have Christ in common, so we are in common. We are in community. Um, so every interaction we have with anyone is triangulated through Christ. That I don't just talk to Katie. I talk to, like, Katie through the means of Christ. That Christ is, our, is both of our representative and Christ is our mediator. Um, how would that change our interactions with each other? How would that change our interactions with strangers? How would that change our interactions with kids, our kids or our spouses, if we saw each other and were connected to each other only in and through Christ. Um, that means, I think also that, in some sense, I don't really know anyone apart from Christ. That any, what, any intimacy I have with someone is in and through Christ. But that also means that in Jesus, I can have and be in community with anyone. Do you see the possibility of that? that? That I can be with anyone because Christ is with us. This is, this is a, a huge insight, or it has been a huge insight for my life. It also affects what we do. Um, that the, he says the goal of all Christian community is to, quote, meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. It means if we're not bringing the message of salvation to each other, we're not doing our job. And if we're not receiving that message of salvation from someone else, we're closing ourselves off from an encounter with the real stuff of Christianity, of Jesus, right? Uh, and sometimes it's, it's as hard to receive that from someone as it is to offer it, especially if you're like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and used to having the answers and being in charge and being on the up. Um, to receive these things from someone else and to put them and to make them vital in your life is a really acquired skill and, and it's really important. In some sense, then we are all in community stand-ins for Jesus in our bodies. That's really important. That means that the real thing, the real, that real life is way more important than any sort of ideal or idea. This is crazy talk for like this Protestant German modernist theologian to talk about real life, concrete, practical things. This means, and he even in Life Together, he, he cautions us in our like, church life. He says, if the only relationship with, that you have with someone is on a spiritual level, which is good, he wants that to happen, um, that, that's dangerous and abnormal, he says. Ordinary, everyday associations must be part of a spiritual friendship because, because God has shown up in reality. Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt with us. 
So as you seek to form and grow and strengthen these spiritual relationships, also make sure that you're seeking to form and, and increase and grow the everyday reliance, the material needs and, and, and the regular enjoyment. I love uh, Bonhoeffer um, had this, um, started this underground seminary for um, uh, would-be theologians and pastors. And a big part of it was eating together and playing soccer. Like that, that was some of what they did, right? I assure you, um, that's not really what you do at seminary, or that wasn't my seminary experience, except for some, some pretty hard-fought uh, intramural sports, yeah. But uh, so Bonhoeffer has shown me, has, has, and I think opens up this idea that Christ is present in community, maybe first and foremost. Another thing I think is really remarkable, really special, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he lived a musical life. This is not readily apparent. I think there was this question. He, you, you heard him ask the question, who am I? And he asked all these questions. And I think one of his other questions is, how do we hold all of this together? This is another prescient question for us. Because it feels like everything's kind of fracturing and falling apart and breaking apart. And these bonds that we used to rely on are, are kind of unreliable or impossible. And so he's asking, how do we hold it all together in this fragmentation? And you'd think that he would answer this in like theological terms or philosophical terms or even like technocratic terms of like, here's a technique to do. Um, but he was, you know, a 38-year-old pastor and scholar in prison and he's writing from Flossenburg to his friend Eberhard Bethke and he tackles this question of how do we hold it all together? And he uses musical language. He uses words like cantus firmus and counterpoint and polyphony. And I'm not at all the most qualified person. Uh, we should ask some of our musicians to talk about these terms. But Bonhoeffer is using these things because these are kind of baked into who he was. He was playing Mozart sonatas at age 10 and so speaking musically was definitely like a second language to him. And so he talks theologically in musical terms. I, I think a little of the scene in Shawshank Redemption, um, because he's doing this from prison, and Tim Robbins' character, Andy Dufresne, if you don't know this story, I'm allowed to spoil it, and you can just like turn on TBS, and it'll probably be on this afternoon. So, um, but Andy Dufresne's in prison, and, and he basks, in this fleeting presence of music from a record player. This hopeful duet from the marriage of Figaro amidst his hopelessness and isolation and the monotony of his life in prison. And, and he says, those two Italian ladies were saying something too beautiful that can't be expressed in words that makes your heart ache because of it. And I think Bonhoeffer kind of had this vibrant inner musical life even when he was surrounded by silence. In, in captivity. Uh, he writes, the music that we hear inwardly can almost surpass if we really concentrate on it what we hear physically. Do you know what kind of imagination that requires, right? Um, so he, he writes to Eberhard Bethke um, that he wants the love of God to be the steady backbeat in which all of our other loves and experiences, even our pain and even our joy, good things and bad things, all make sense. 
inside the, the cantus firmus, the steady baseline of God's love in Christ. He, for him, a polyphony, like poly, many sounds, can happen, um, can even be a good thing. We take that to be a threat. It, it's like dissonant in our ears, and we don't know how to put it all together. But for him, even a polyphony can exist. It can contribute to flourishing and, and wholeness as long as there's this cantus firmus that keeps going in our lives. It's not only possible, but it's necessary to draw resurrection life from being joined back to the crucified Jesus. So maybe you're coming here this morning and you feel very polyphonic, right? Like your life is crazy. You're all over the place. You can't even hear the cantus firmus again. Uh, for Bonhoeffer, the idea is that cantus firmus has been there the whole time and you, you need to draw back to that life, back to that source of wholeness, back to that beat that, that makes you whole in this fragmented world. The, this is attached to the idea that a thought, theology of hope and a theology of the cross are inseparable. They're the rhythm section, that all of these solos and harmonies and even like the sour notes of our life fall off of and can come back to. Like God's, God's love through the cross and resurrection of Jesus is, are like the two and four beats that want us to clap along to them, even when we've been clapping on the ones and threes so awkwardly for so long. We're, we need to be drawn back to this cantus firmus. Um, we sang uh, part of this letter to Bethke in Bonhoeffer's prayer. And another part of, of that letter shows these theomusical instincts of this morning prayer. And I, I, I won't go on and on about how Bonhoeffer really enjoys the morning time because I know we have some not morning uh, people in this house. Uh, but uh, in, in this, he says, and I think there's a slide for it, Steve. Uh, this is part of his prayer. He says, I'm feeble in heart, but with you there's help. I'm restless, but with you there's peace. In me there's bitterness, but with you there's patience. I don't understand your ways, but you know the way for me. That's what that song came from. And I think it's significant that this kind of backbeat song, trying to gather all these disparate parts, um, was was picked up by the Tize community. And so the song that we sang actually was originally a Tize song. And Tize is this ecumenical Christian community in southern France, or in central France. And it was founded by Brother Roger in 1940 for refugees of war. So needless to say, Brother Roger and his uh, fellow uh, monks had all sorts of run-ins with the Gestapo <laughs> um, in uh, World War II, France and Germany and Poland. And these, these brothers of Tze, um, in that time and since then and still ongoing till today, have cultivated this really robust community of hospitable space for worship and for peacemaking. Uh, for refugees, for spiritual pilgrims, you can go. It doesn't cost anything to go there. If you can get there, you can go and you can stay. And they have all of these times a day where you can sing these chants. And they're really invitational and musically inclusive, and as you heard, really repetitious, but they're deeply formative in and across differences. Uh, pilgrims come from all over the world and sing in their native language the same songs, and it, there's enough space in that for all those different languages to come together. They're, these tunes are simple and repetitive, but they're also like spacious enough 
for multilingual polyphony. They're solid and steady enough to bring them into a distinct whole. Um, Tizé uh, does this in a participatory way. Like, you're not only praying for unity and peace, but in singing together and joining your voices that sound different and might even be speaking different languages, you're actually creating unity and peace as you sing. It's a really beautiful thing. Um, so Bonhoeffer uh, emphasizes that Christ is known in community and he lived a musical life. And the last, the last thing I want to note, and I'd love if you all come back in a week or a month or even at the end today, tell me the, the things you notice about Bonhoeffer's life. Um, but the last thing, it's sort of a combination of the previous two things. But I think it might also be the reason for both that Bonhoeffer had an expectation to be changed by others. And he was really changed. Like he was changed for good. He expected Jesus to show up. He had eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart and an imagination to receive. And so he was able to change. Maybe the most notable, notable change happened at the beginning of his career in 1930. He finished his studies in Germany. He was this young gun, up-and-comer. He had, he had um, a faculty spot in, in Bonn, and he decided instead to take this fellowship year. Again, this is another like detour in a Union Seminary. It's like the seminary attached to Columbia in Manhattan, right, on Broadway. And he went from learning from some of the biggest shots in Europe to some of the biggest uh, like theological minds in America, like the Niebuhr brothers, right? Um, and he developed this friendship with a fellow student, Frank Fisher, also on a fellowship. And that friendship took him from Broadway to Abyssinian Baptist Church, just like a borough over in Harlem. Prior to this friendship and church, Bonhoeffer had scarcely known a black person. Think about that in 40s Germany, right? Um, but it hadn't occurred to him truly uh, prior to this, that his dominant picture of Jesus was mostly as this, like, triumphant victor Jesus, this Jesus the risen, Jesus who walks on water. But at Abyssinian, he learned about Jesus who walks through the valley of the shadow of death. He learned about Jesus on the cross. It's here he heard the preaching of Adam Clay, uh, Clayton Powell, and he saw what it meant to preach the good news, but also to organize in the community. It's here that Bonhoeffer's theory of Jesus as like a representative, remember that, per, that go-between, that mediator, of Jesus as humanity's empathetic representative, it's here that it receives its form. Jesus, the black Jesus on a lynching tree, is this new idea for how God is representative of suffering humanity. It's here that Bonhoeffer rep recognizes in these spirituals that he had never heard before. He, he had heard all the, the European German hymns, but now he's singing these spirituals in community. And he's hearing a new cantus firmus. It's strong and it's moving forward. 
and he's attaching himself to this Cantus Firmus. It's here that Bonhoeffer soaks up all the art and literature of the Harlem Renaissance that's happening around him, and he's influenced by W.E.B. Du Bois and Claude McKay and uh, Georgia Douglas Johnson and Langston Hughes. He's, he's just a sponge in Harlem. It's here that he was asked to teach Sunday school, and in so doing, he learns as much as he teaches because it's the first time he's ever taught as a minority, like a vast minority, right? It's here he later reflects, even with multiple theological doctorates under his belt, it's in, 19, it's in 1930s Harlem that he says that he became a Christian. Think about that, that he had just then become a Christian. Uh, Reggie Williams is a scholar who wrote a book called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, and he said, in Harlem, Bonhoeffer learned of a black tradition of Jesus that connected faithfulness to God, the recognition of suffering, and the presence of Christ as a co-sufferer. The ministries that Bonhoeffer participated in at Abyssinian Baptist Church coupled with the in, uh, intellectual interrogation of Jesus within the Harlem Renaissance provided Bonhoeffer with new resources to filter the nationalism from his Christianity. And it helped him to develop into an advocate for ecumenism, peacemaking, and social justice. As a consequence of that black experience with Jesus, his theology became more than conceptual. His Christology became more prominent. It means Jesus was the forefront of his imagination. And, it, and he says, and Bonhoeffer became more serious about his faith. In other words, Harlem helped Bonhoeffer be crucified with Christ so that Christ might live in him. This recognition was born out later in Bonhoeffer's life when rather than fleeing to the United States, he actually had a trip back to Union um, in, the, in the 40s, and he instead went back to Europe rather than stay and be safe. And his mentors, both Reinhold Niebuhr and Karl Barth, uh, told him to leave. It was too unsafe um, and, and wished him to do so, but instead he stayed in Germany. He created that underground seminary, training pastors and forming communities of resistance by living in community. There's another story of Bonhoeffer with his students, and he locked himself in uh, the uh, kitchen of, of their common area uh, and just did the dishes because no one was volunteering to do the dishes. And so the person in charge had to do the dishes, right? Needless to say, that probably never happened again, right? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, instead of being safe from World War II Europe, he went back to Germany to do the dishes, right? And also to die. He sought not only to, quote, bandage victims of injustice, but to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And like Christ, with Christ, in Christ, he was crushed by that wheel. He created an, an interruption, an eruption of grace. And this was costly grace. It cost him his life. In discipleship, he talks about costly graces as triumphant over cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. There's a, a certain irony if you read Charles Marsh's biography of Bonhoeffer, which is called Strange Glory. 
the young Bonhoeffer, and this kind of drove me nuts when I was reading it, the young Bonhoeffer was really concerned in his academic travels with what he was going to wear. He, he was like this little rich boy that would send letters back home saying, send my summer suits when I go to Spain, right? And send money because my suits here aren't tailored to my uh, desires, right? The irony, though, is that later Bonhoeffer dies in that Flossenburg death camp, like Christ, with Christ, in Christ, naked and alone. Like he'd counted the cost and he answered that call to come and die. He had a life that had been crucified with Christ and with all the saints, even you and I, holy ones in Christ, who loves us and gave himself for us so that we might live. You all pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks for this life. Um, this life changed by a community. This life preaching your presence in community and uh, this life um, finding music even in pain and silence. Uh, Lord, inspire our lives and the life of this community that we might know you better um, through the witness of your child, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, when we ask, who am I, when each of us asks that, we, we pray that you, you answer us. And you say that you're mine. Uh, you're my beloved one in whom I love and am well pleased. Help us ask that question over and over and um, find uh, in your answer uh, a call to follow you. Uh, thanks uh, for these words and all, all the words um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote. Um, thanks uh, for your word that's sharp and cuts us, uh, but also gives us new life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.